Welcome to episode 25 of From the Sands, the Cool Picks show. On today's show, we are going to have former Raptors play-by-play announcer and now Chicago Bulls play-by-play announcer Chuck Swarski on the show, where Chuck is going to talk about his time in Toronto, what it's like to be a broadcaster in the NBA, uh, his transition from Chicago to Toronto and back, and so much more. Before we get Chuck on the show, though, just would like to give a shout-out to our design team, Matt Creative and Matthew DeCastro, for their artwork that you see with the logos for the show uh, each and every episode. So without further ado, let's get Chuck on and start talking some basketball. All right, Chuck Swirsky, how are you, sir? I'm doing well. How are you? Good. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. How are things going right now? Well, things are going. <laughs> I mean, we go day to day. Simple as that. I know I can speak for millions of people uh, that are viewing our um, get together today. And, you know, the bottom line is that we're doing our very best under extraordinary situation. And um, we just take one day at a time. Yeah, definitely. That's the way we have to do. And obviously, we hope now with, with sports back and have been back for a few weeks, people kind of have that nor- the sense of normalcy back. And uh, we'll hopefully be able to see some fans in the stands come or probably early next year at this point. Yeah, we hope so. I don't know what normalcy means anymore, to be quite candid with you. And, uh, you know, I'm, I really don't. I mean, in a make-believe world, I'd love to see fans. I don't know if that's going to happen or not. Obviously, you know, the health and welfare of people, first and foremost, is uh, all, all our, our concerns. But, you know, having said this, uh, it is good to see actual competition, whether it's on the ball field or in the hockey rink or on the basketball court. Definitely. Now, let's talk about some positive news with yourself. Um, my first question for you is, how did you, where was the interest into getting into the sports broadcasting come for you? Well, in fact, I just had this conversation with my wife the other day because my parents were really not geared, or anyone for that matter in my family, my two sisters, were really not into sports at all. In fact, if you were to uh, turn the clock back, if I were to ask my dad, who's deceased and has been deceased since I was in the sixth grade, but if I said, Dad, name me three teams in Major League Baseball, you could probably name maybe one or two because it was obvious the Yankees or the Dodgers. After that, he probably couldn't really tell you the same thing. My mom could probably tell you maybe the Cleveland Indians because she grew up in Cleveland before attending school out east. So I would say to myself, okay, where did this come from? It probably started when I had an overnight as a little boy staying at a friend's house and his father took us to Uh, a baseball game. And the only thing I remember as a kid, the baseball diamond, it was green and it was beautifully manicured and the uniforms were white and red. And I just fell in love with it. And one thing led to the next where I heard the public address announcer speaker and I just loved it. And one thing led to the next and I knew I wanted to be a, a sportscaster when I was five years old. It's interesting that you say that because I kind of have a similar path in the sense that now I play baseball and basketball with the Special Olympics. But before that, 
growing up, I grew up in Toronto. I now live out in uh, Durham region. And I never, my parents, like my dad played some college ball when he was in college, but my mom didn't really do any sports. My dad didn't do any sports outside of ball. And so growing in, getting into Durham and growing up, I had a friend in high school that said like, hey, like, do you want to come play baseball? And I, I kind of started to get a feel for baseball prior to that. But I was like, yeah, sure, why not? And sure enough, here we are 14 years later, and uh, I'm still playing ball and basketball with them. And I'm more invested in sports than I ever was. So it's it's kind of unique where those circumstances kind of come from for everyone. Yeah, well, I was always the smallest kid in the class. And I remember one day I went home and I said, I really want to play football. And my dad told me, he goes, son, I'm telling you right now, this is a tough sport and I don't want you hurt. Yeah. But dad, I really, really want to play. And he goes, I'm telling you right now, I don't want you hurt. And so he goes, okay. And to his credit, he, you know, he got me shoulder pads. I remember I got the helmet. And I remember the first practice, as I'm telling you the story, um, you know, right my, now my brain is reliving every moment of this. I remember the coach during a scrimmage because he wanted to find out who could run, who could tackle, all the drills that went into a tryout. And so he had me play linebacker. Now, if you saw my frame when I was 11 years old or 10 years old, I was not a linebacker. But he put me back there, and I got trucked. I mean, I'm talking I got crushed by someone coming right across the line. And my helmet was turned completely around where the nose guard was in the back of my neck. And... I, I mean, I was bruised and the coach put his arm around my shoulder and said, son, you know what? I, I don't want you hurt. And when it's one thing when your parent tells you that, because, you know, when you're about 11 or 12, you think you're a lot smarter than your mom and dad. You know, we all go through that phase. Yeah. I, you know, I know more than you, you know, one of those things. So you really, you pay attention, but you really don't pay attention to your parents at that point in your life because you think you have all the problems solved in the world. But when a coach comes to you and says basically the same thing your father's saying, and he is looking out in the best interest of you physically, that's when you know, you know what? Yeah, maybe maybe you're right. So that was my only venture and attempt to play football. Well, it's kind of a good thing that you got off the football field because you wound up in the radio booth. Um, because in 1979, where you uh, you started your career on the radio, where you talked sports in Chicago, so you talked about what you loved uh, with callers. And then in the 1980s uh, year, you were named the public address announcer for the Bulls. So again, that childhood memory of hearing the public address announcer, you're now getting to live that out. How did your passion for wanting to start announcing and discuss sports come up? Um, did it come up from like not being able to really play on the field and wanting to announce it, or how did that start? Well, I, I played Little League Baseball because, you know, when you sign up, uh, everyone has a chance to play on a roster in Little League Baseball. And that doesn't necessarily mean, though, you're going to play. And the coach, I, like one of the early practices, the coach, because I was a horrible athlete, and one, one day the coach comes to me and says, hey, Charlie, um, do you know how to keep score? Because we're really looking, he's trying to build this up 
He says, we're really looking for someone who knows the game, who knows how to keep score. And I used to keep score of baseball games by listening to the radio. Because when I grew up as a kid, games weren't televised on an everyday basis. We had one game. The game of the week was on NBC every Saturday at 1 o'clock. And so getting a baseball game on television was a big deal. So I would listen to the radio. And we didn't have a Major League Baseball team in Seattle, or for that matter, in Norfolk, Virginia, where I grew up. But we had minor league teams. So I would listen to the radio. I would write down the starting lineups. I, I, I made my own scorecard. And I learned how to keep score. And so when I got to Little League Baseball, you know, we were required. We had two games every week. We played on a Wednesday and we played on a Saturday. And so everyone had to play at least three innings over a two-game span. Obviously, a lot of players played much more than that, but everyone had to play three innings. That meant whether I played one inning one game, two innings the next, three innings in one game, zero in the next, I had to play three innings. So the coach wanted to play me zero innings, but he was required to play three. So he said, I need somebody to keep score. Have you ever done that? Not knowing that his agenda was like, Charlie's not very good, but I got to find a place for him. So I kept score. <laughs> and um, so that was my really my, my go-to in Little League Baseball. Now, in the mid-1990s, um, you made the move to Detroit where you began to do play-by-play -play for the University of Michigan uh, for their basketball program. Yes. What, was the, what was the decision for you to, uh, to move to Detroit and start uh, doing play-by-play -play and not so much scorekeeping? Well, that's a good question. Well, I had been at WGN a long, long time. Uh, 13 of my 15 years in the first stint in Chicago were spent at GN. I did everything. Station was awesome. Management was great. Uh, the people I worked with, fantastic. But they were going another direction with their college basketball package. Uh, DePaul's rights were up. They wanted to bring in Northwestern, which is the station's decision. And obviously, you know, as an employee of the radio station, you know, I had no say, and I understand it. You know, they got a better deal to pick up Northwestern. And so DePaul, their rights went to another station with another announcer. And so here I am. I could have stayed at, at GN, uh, but I wanted to do play-by-play. -play, and I caught the bug, and I loved it. And I loved doing basketball. And two weeks after the announcement was made that we were losing DePaul, University of Michigan, WJR call, and they said, we're looking for somebody. And so I sent a tape. They came back to me and said, let's fly in for an interview. Had the interview, looked around Detroit, and I'd been to Detroit a number of times. And, you know, I was so used to Chicago and the electricity of Chicago and knowing what was going on. But I loved the University of Michigan. And so I said, you know what, I'm, I'm going to take this leap of faith. And so, you know, I was married. We have children, young children, uh, and we go. And as it turned out, it was probably four of the best years 
of my life. The people at the University of Michigan, ranging from the athletic director to the coaches to everyone involved, even the people at the radio station, who and I'm walking in not knowing like anybody, with the exception maybe of a little of the sports director at the time who relinquished that title to me to become the play-by-play announcer of the Tigers, but I really didn't know anyone. And so this was this was a brand new canvas, wide open, and the four years there, I can honestly say calling play-by-play for Michigan was one of the highlights of my career. Now, after you, and that's incredible because I've been to uh, Detroit and I, I've seen uh, a couple of Michigan games um, kind of like just on TV. I haven't been able to actually get in the stadium and watch a game just because of time and scheduling, but that is on my bucket list to do. But that just, again, that area um, around the stadium is tremendous. It's huge. So just being able to be part of that is uh, definitely um, a huge highlight for sure. Now, in 1998, you moved to Toronto to then become the play-by-play voice announcer of the Toronto Raptors. How was the transition for you to go from university sports in Michigan to then be calling games for the for an NBA team in Toronto? Well, without question, I mean, it was a huge jump and a big leap. And, um, you know, at first, I ne- I've never questioned my ability. Sometimes you, you wonder in the back of your mind, uh, you know, is this a good fit? Well, from day one, I knew it was going to be a good fit. Uh, the people with Raptors organization, with the Fan 590, Nelson Millman, who was running the radio station at the time, um, you know, Richard Petty, Tom Anselmi, Glenn Grunwald, Butch Carter, people that were in that mix with Raptors in 1998, I immediately, there was, the, the chemistry was there from the get-go. And so... The thing that I really had to work on in my craft, uh, and this was, and I own this, is the fact that I need to get better. I, I was in a comfort zone doing college ball, and the NBA is a completely different animal altogether. The beast of the NBA is that it's faster and that you have to work in a color person uh, being an analyst in a 24-second span of a sequence of a player plays and the game was radically different than college in college um, you could hold the ball Um, obviously maybe you had two or three skilled players on each college team at the pro level everyone's skilled and when they run a fast break they run a fast break that ball is zipped over the midcourt line within two seconds so now as an announcer I had to make sure, pick up the pace, keep the energy, describe the action. And I will never forget my first NBA broadcast. It's one thing to go in the stands as a kid and practice and you know, do that little air check, so to speak, and then you replay it and you say, okay. But it's another to actually be on the radio with the adrenaline and staying locked in the moment. And so uh, Jack Armstrong and I did a preseason game at Skydome with Boston and the Raptors. And I remember at halftime, I was full of perspiration. I was like exhausted mentally and physically because of the stress, because of the game, because of the nervous energy um, that was just oozing from my mind, body, and soul. And then I got through the second half 
And then we did one more preseason game in Boston, opened the season in Boston. So that helped me because I was familiar with the players. And I had seen the players in college. Obviously, I did 18 years of college ball. So I had seen all these players pass through college. Some I broadcast uh, in the same conference, whether it was Michigan with the Big Ten or with DePaul in the Great Midwest, the old Great Midwest Conference. So the, the, we kind of connected one way or the other. I would go up to players and start talking to them, introducing. It was a great lead-in saying, hey, I saw you in the Big Ten. I did Michigan. And we'd have a conversation that would kind of take from one nugget of information to another. But uh, that's what I remember about that, that early beginning and the trail that led me to now going into my 23rd season in 2021 for the NBA. That's incredible. And uh, like talk about a huge transition, as you said, where that pace, like I watch games, I've seen Raptor games live, obviously I've seen them on TV and I listened to uh, like now Matt Devlin and Jack Armstrong still doing their announcing. And it's crazy how, again, like you said, the speed and the pace of the game is so different compared to university ball where you're like, Oh, uh, the ball was there. Now it's over there. Like I, you have to be on that constantly. So um, yeah, that's, that's such a huge accomplishment as well. And like you said, you're still doing it, um, with the bulls, which we will get into, uh, shortly. Um, but we did have a fan question that did come in and during the early years of your time with the Raptors, obviously you got to see a lot of Vince Carter. Is there one or two moments of watching Vince on the court that stand out as your all time favorite? Well, let's let's put the the All Star in Oakland at Oracle, where he won the slam dunk, because that was really the big stage, and that put him on the map. I mean, people had heard of Vince Carter at North Carolina, even high school ball. I mean, it's not like he was coming out of nowhere and came onto the scene at Carolina. He was heavily recruited, and then of course at Carolina, he was terrific, and he was Rookie of the Year with the Raptors. So we're not talking about a guy that was under the radar. He was on the radar from day one. But uh, there are a number of games when I start thinking about his career with the Raptors and whether you want to start talking about, you know, his 50-plus game, uh, you know, when, when he scored 51 against um, uh, Phoenix at the Old Air Canada Center, now, Nova, now, now what, Scotia Bank, I believe, is the name of the arena. Yeah. But, I mean, he, he was doing this game after game after game where he was dunking knocking down threes. The playoff series in 2001 against Philadelphia was amazing. And I mean, it, it was, it can go on and on and on his list of accomplishments. You know, he won two games in a span of like five days uh, where he won at Boston in the bright corner, hit a jumper out in front uh, at Staples against the Clippers. And, you know, he got mobbed by his teammates in LA. And so it was, you know, he had a, a tremendous career. He set it to the Hall of Fame. Definitely. Um, and it's too bad, obviously, with COVID, Toronto wasn't able to give him a proper send-off the way that they should have, obviously, because the season had been postponed until recently. Um, but you're right. He is a future Hall of Famer, hands down. And um, he definitely did put Toronto on the map. And it's funny because I just actually recently, probably about two, three weeks ago, watched the Carter Effect on Netflix for the first time. And it was just so cool to see the insider knowledge around Vincent, like what you said, of how he was heavily scouted from day one, like the first uh, step that he took on the high school court, he was 
that guy, right? So, um, now another part two of that question was, um, we know that obviously he was a big dunk guy. He obviously did the dunking at the All-Star game, um, as well as regular NBA games, probably won uh, won a game at least. Is there one or two games where he either dunked on someone or that he made kind of that like, whoa, that was amazing, like that outstanding dunk that stands out for you? Well, I mean, the Olympics where he dunked over Frederick Weiss, I mean, that, that, that probably will go down uh, not only in Olympic history, and it's ingrained in the mind of so many people because here uh, a human being literally dunked over a seven-foot specimen. So, I mean, that, that, it's, it's pretty hard to do, and he did it. Uh, yeah. But, I mean, I can you, you, you look at some of the dunks where he was just going after players and taking it right to the rack. I mean, it was, that's, that's why, I mean, on any given night, you could have a 360, you could have a 180, you could have a windmill, you could have a, a monster right-handed slam, you could have a reverse dunk, two-handed slam. Uh, it, was, it was really, when you went to the Air Canada Centre to watch Vince Carter, you never knew what you were going to get when the ball was tipped off uh, because you were expecting something to happen every night and you would leave the arena speechless and then when you got in your car or the go train to go back to your residence after the game you were still talking about and you were still talking about the next day whether you were a student or whether you were a business person and he attracted such a following and really put basketball on the map now talking about kind of putting individuals on the map in a in a smaller sense in 2007 the raptors actually honored you um when they gave out 18,000 bobbleheads of yourself um how was it for you to be able to find out that you were getting a bobblehead of yourself that people would take home and then put up in a mantle similar to like what i have got here well a couple things uh you're very kind to do that so i appreciate it um the first we actually had and, uh, and I'm, I'm saying this modestly because one bobblehead night led to the second. So the first bobblehead night um, was a complete surprise, like total surprise. I did not really find out until like a few days before uh, because they started to advertise, hey, Chuck Swirsky bobblehead night. And I thought, what? And so then I went to the marketing person. He said, yeah, we're, you know, we're having a bobblehead night in your honor. And I thought, oh, my gosh. So fortunately, we sold out, you know, and I got writer's cramp because everyone wanted, you know, the autograph on the box so they could put it on eBay and sell it for 14 cents. But uh, that was I was very humbled by that. Then I think it was the next year they had a talking bobblehead. And that I knew was coming because they had me record about five or six, maybe seven of my sayings that I, you know, were attached to Raptor Ball. And they brought me into a studio and they said, okay, say onions, baby onions. So I would talk into a mic, onions, baby onions. Okay, let's try it again. And I would do like five, six, seven takes. So then they would say, get off the salami and cheese, mama, this game's over. Get out the salami and cheese, mama. This ball game is over. Okay, let's let's try that again. 
So I knew that was coming. And so there was a little button on the base of the bobblehead and you would you know, hit the button and you know, then they'd hear my voice. So I knew that was coming. The first one was surprised. That's really cool. And uh, I have to say, I am one of those individuals that collect bobbleheads, not to sell, but to, as a hobby, like for example, for the Blue Jays, I have, I think every Blue Jays bobblehead they've given out since 2001, except for like 14 of them. Wow. Um, same thing with the Raptors, things like that. So it's, uh, it's really cool when you get to see people that you grew up with watching on TV or I don't like people that play in sport uh, on the court, on the field, whatever it may be that you get to bring home kind of like that little token of the game as well. Right. And, and be able For whatever to reason, people it. love bobbleheads. It's just I mean, a when, when I was a kid, I remember going to a ballpark and I wanted my mom to buy me a bobblehead and you know, and why? Because I don't know, you touch the, the top of the crown of the bobblehead and it bobbles and you, you kind of get a, get a little bit of a chuckle yeah. and then you see it. But, um, you know, so when I left the Raptors in 2008, they said, you know, we've got boxes of bobbleheads. Can we send them? I said, sure. This is a true story. They sent about four huge boxes. <laughs> Chicago. They were all broken. Oh, no. Every, Every one broken. Oh, and so, honestly, I I really don't have any, and I think I have one bobblehead. I'd have to really look hard to find it. Oh man, that's awful. That's always like the night that the worst nightmare is like if you win a bobblehead or something and it gets shipped. It's like oh great, it's broken. What am I going to do now? Right? They were all broken. I mean, every every one of them, and I was so disappointed. But it is what it is. Yeah. And well, now talking about the bobbleheads, especially the second one where you had to record your famous sayings, again, the one being salami and cheese and the other one saying onions, baby onions. Where did the, the origin or origin, sorry, of those two sayings begin for you? Well, the, the get off the salami and cheese, I, I received a letter from a gentleman and he said, you know, he, he loves Raptor ball, watches every game is afraid other than a halftime afraid to leave you know to uh, make a sandwich get a snack and he goes listen you know the next time you you feel the raptors have won can you let me know something so i can just you know head to the fridge and i love salami and cheese so i'm looking at this letter and saying what so sure enough you know raptors are playing and i didn't tell anyone in the production truck like no one so Raptors are up by like eight points with like 14 seconds to go. And I said, get out the salami and cheese, mama. This ball game is over. And the producer is in my ear saying, uh, what's that? And, you know, he's talking to me while the game has like less than 30 seconds to go. And I hit the mute button where I could talk to the producer in the truck, but they could not hear me over the air. I said, I, I got it. It's good. You know, I'll tell you later. He goes, get out the salami and cheese. So I'm thinking that was it, one and done. Yeah. Well, the next day, I get a call from the receptionist. And she goes, Chuck, I'm getting all these calls from people about salami and cheese. What is going on? And I said, really? And they said, yes. The people love it. They want to know, like, is there a brand? 
And so we did it every time the Raptors won a ball game where I felt comfortable. And then all of a sudden it caught on. Uh, Pizza Pizza did a promotion. We had T-shirts. Um, the fans were bringing, you know, signs to the games. Uh, the Raptor players would walk by during the end of a game when they were checking in, subbing for the regulars, and they would walk by and say, have you called the salami and cheese yet? Or one player even told me, he goes, I bet you've already called the salami and cheese or I wouldn't be in the game. <laughs> so, <laughs> and I won't tell you which player. But anyway, so that was a lot of fun. That was a nice period. And what about the Onions Baby Onions? How did that one start? Well, the Onions Baby Onions came about because in um, onions means like in basketball terminology when a guy really stepped up and he brought it. And it was a, a masculine thing. And so I just kind of tweaked a little bit. I said, onions, baby onions. And that means like a player, really a man, really came through and, and you know, came up with a, a crucial moment, in this case, a basket, at a time where, you know, it was probably very, very crucial. That's, that's incredible. Those are, well, those are two amazing sayings. Obviously they've lasted. Um, and it, it's cool. I mean, like Jack Armstrong has his where it's get that garbage out of here now and, and things like that. But it's, it's neat how these sayings always resonate with the fans, with those watching, those listening and everything where. Well, to- yeah. And, and the same thing happened. I remember I got a beautiful letter from someone in uh, Moncton, and I didn't even know, you know, I, I, I think I'm Moncton. I'm thinking of minor league hockey team. And they got our broadcast one day. So uh, someone on the Raptors hit a three ball. And I said, ring it up from downtown Moncton. And that goes out too. And I read the person's name. Well, the next day, because I'm very big on social media and emailing, and I wrote a daily column on raptors.com, I'm getting emails saying, Chuck, can, if you know, someone hits a three, can you mention my name on the air? So we did it only one time a game. And so it started and it went viral. I mean, it went viral. So if somebody, whether it was from Hamilton or whether it was from, you know, anywhere, you could name it throughout Canada. And we would mention that person's name and hometown. That's really cool. And that's something special as, as well for fans watching to take home and just say like, hey, my name got mentioned. Then That's a yep. really cool aspect. Now, um, in 2008, you did leave the Raptors for personal reasons and have since returned to Chicago where you're continuing, as you mentioned earlier, to do play-by-play work with the Bulls. Um, how was that transition for you back to Chicago after being with the Raptors for a number of years? Well, I mean, listen, leaving Toronto was very, very difficult. This was not this was not a decision based on anything personally affected with or professionally, I, I might add, with the Raptors. I had a great relationship with ownership and management and the basketball staff and the coach. I totally respect everything. This was a personal decision based on a, a family situation. So notifying them was extremely, extremely difficult. And, you know, here I am 12 years later, Bulls are fantastic, same thing, great ownership, management, coaching staff and whatnot. And, um, but 
in the moment when I had to leave, it was hard and it was it was very, very tough because the way I was treated, uh, the way I was appreciated, the way I was valued by the Raptors, and that's something that I will cherish in my heart for the rest of my life. And that's the most important part is, again, walking away with those memories and having, like you said, even with the University of Michigan, where those were, those were some of your best four highlights in your career, just having those memories of being able to share those in your future as well, like you're doing right now with me. Yes. Now, talking off the court for a minute, in 2016, you were inducted into the Chicago Land Sports Hall of Fame, as well as in 2018, you were inducted into the Illinois Basketball Coaches Association Hall of Fame, as well as the WGN Radio Walk of Fame. Those are so many different accomplishments. So first off, like hands off to you for all of your hard work and dedication to deserve those. But what does it mean for you to see all of that hard work and dedication kind of pay off in those um, recognitions? Wow. Well, uh, you've done your homework. Okay. So, um, well, number one, uh, it really isn't about me, honestly. And I mean, I'm saying this sincerely with a heart full of humility because uh, I wouldn't be in this position without people believing in me and whether or not that was with WGN when they hired me and they gave me a chance at the age of 27 to become a, a key instrument in what they were doing with a sports programming platform. Um, the Illinois Basketball Coaches Hall of Fame, I think uh, means a great deal because the respect I have for coaches. When my father died, uh, I was in the sixth grade. And I grew up uh, for the most part in Seattle. And it was a high school basketball coach. His son was a grade behind me in school, but his son's father was a high school basketball coach. And his father took us to so many games. In fact, I saw him a year ago, and he's in his mid to late 80s now, and he's still living in the same house, same neighborhood where I grew up. And I saw him for the first time in decades. And it was like we picked up where we left off when I was a kid. The influence he had on me as a coach, as a mentor, it was invaluable. So I respect what coaches do on a daily basis, more than just X's and O's. The situation which the Chicagoland Sports Hall of Fame, I mean, you think of all the great people that have come through the city of Chicago, whether it's been coaching, playing, staff, medical field, media, and the B1 in the history, in the history of this city and the sports that started way back during the Bronco Nagurski days in the National Football League from Cubs baseball in the early 1900s and the White Sox and the Bulls who came in in 1966 and the NHL, you know, coming in with the Blackhawks, you know, 80 years ago. I mean, to be in that group of 260 people, it's, it's I mean, it's overwhelming. Um, but again, this is something that you, no one ever gets there by themselves. And if they tell you that, they're a fool. Because this is about people who take a, an interest in you and help you move one block, one step, one piece of advice and wisdom at a time. Uh, because honestly, um, there are a lot of deserving people, probably more so than I, 
in those walks of fame, halls of fame that are still hoping one day to get into that, you know, select circle. Um, and so I think a lot of it is based on uh, timing. Some of it's based on obviously my skill set. But having said all this, it really is the foundation of people who help you move up the ranks and a pyramid, so to speak. Because when you when you have a pyramid, you you start with a with a foundation, then you build up. You don't put the pinnacle on first. You know everything is a pinnacle and a pyramid of success, as the late John Wooden said. And that's how I try and live my professional and personal life. Well, you're definitely doing that just again by, like you said, being so active on social media, interacting with your fans. I mean, that's how um, I reach out to you just about this and um, and how great it was to be able to connect um, with you and, and chat about basketball. Um, I have a couple more questions for you. We had another fan question come in asking that outside of basketball, if you could call another professional sport, which sport would you want to call and why? Outside of professional sports, uh, sorry, no, like another professional sport, so outside of basketball. Oh, okay, I'm sorry. Okay, here, yeah. Well, I've I've done backup baseball, and and I and I thoroughly enjoy it. The whole key of doing baseball is you really have to have a really good analyst, and I have one uh, when I'm called upon to do the White Sox. Steve Stone is fantastic. He is really, really, really good. There's a lot of quote unquote dead time meaning that between pitches, even though they're trying to accelerate and speed up the game, um, and they probably need to, but I don't want that to diminish the fact there is a lot of strategy in baseball. And if I'm a baseball pitcher and you've got the ball 60 feet, six inches away, and let's say on any given day where you're coming out of the bullpen and you've been throwing 30 pitches and your breaking ball is really, really sharp, and then all of a sudden you get to the mound and you've got nothing. And you wonder what happened between walking from the bullpen to the pitching mound where I was so effective throwing to a bullpen catcher for 10 minutes and now I can't get the ball over the plate. So now what's plan B? Well, I may have to go with, you know, a hard slider or fastball, all these things. And so we bring that in, we draw that from our analyst. And so if there's one sport other than basketball, I would call would be baseball. Now, out of your um, career games with basketball, whether it's you could use University of Michigan, the NBA with the Raptors, or even with the Bulls now, has there been one player that has stood out in your mind as your most kind of favorite person to watch, whether it's because of their work on the court or whether it's because of their um, professionalism off the court, anything like that, who would be that person for you? Well, I mean, listen, uh, we could, we could probably do a whole podcast on this. Um, <laughs> this is up to one. Uh, there's two, three, four coming up. Yeah. Yeah. So I'll just leave it at this. I think, from an individual standpoint of what I have seen in person now, okay, in person, um, I was fortunate enough, I was the pre-half and post host for the Bears, the 85 Bears when they won the Super Bowl. And doing the anchor work in New Orleans on the Bears radio network during that season, and then with the Bears going through the Giants and Rams in the playoffs, beating the Patriots, that was an amazing run by the Bears. They lost only one game. That was the Monday night game in Miami. That was probably the greatest 
individual team I have personally seen ever in sports. Now, the best playoff series I've ever seen personally was Raptors 76ers in 2001 and Bulls Celtics in 2009. And I'm talking from a competitive standpoint where it was, it didn't go from zero to 35 or zero to 50. It went from zero to like a hundred. I mean, the intensity uh, was off the charts in those two series. And to have the matchups with Carter and Iverson and the, every, all the storylines with Vince, you know, graduating in the morning in Chapel Hill, flying from Chapel Hill, North Carolina, to Philadelphia for game seven and all the drama surrounding that. I mean, and then having to come down to Vince's last shot. Or when you look at the Bulls and Celtics playing a, a, a wicked seven-game series, and you know you have some great players on the floor, including for the Bulls, a rookie by the name of Derrick Rose. You got Joakim Noah coming into his own as a, one of the elite big, big men in the NBA. And you know you had Rajon Rondo carrying the load for Boston along with Paul Pierce. I mean, it was unbelievable. So, I mean, in person, but the, the single game was Kobe's 81. And I think back on that night when he literally put the entire team on his back and took on, he didn't take on five Raptors, he took on 15 players. I mean, anyone who was in uniform, the 12 players, he took on. And the guys who weren't in uniform, he took them on too because he was probably trash talking. He was probably too tired to talk trash, but I mean, Kobe was, wow. I mean, Kobe was, and you know, the thing is the following year, um, we got Kobe for the pregame show before the Raptor Laker game in LA. And we asked him, uh, let's go back a year and let's talk about that game. And Kobe was very gracious, but he also really didn't want to talk about that because he said, you know what, that's, that's in the past right now. I'm worried about tonight. And sometimes you hear that little 20 second sound bite and you think, well, but that's how Kobe Bryant got locked in. Cause he, you know, there's the time and place for everything to reminisce, just like what we're doing right now, a little about my career. And one day maybe when it's all over and hopefully that won't happen for a while because I still enjoy what I'm doing. But one day, when I can get a scrapbook out and say, oh yeah, I remember that. That's the time and place for it. But right now I live in the moment. Now my last question for you is, what kind of advice would you give to those that may want to get into broadcasting or into sport and just starting off with their career? My advice would be to be you. Now you've got to have a skill set, but you can work on that. And by that I mean, if you want to get in the play-by-play, Work on your craft. Don't expect the craft to come to you. You have to come to it. And that means going to a high school game and calling play-by-play for high school and doing your prep work, just like if you were calling an NBA game. You contact the coach. You contact you know, the athletic director. You find out the roster of players. You do your homework. And you sit in that stands with your you know, smartphone, and you call a game off your smartphone sitting in the stands with the information in front of you. The same thing, whether it's basketball, hockey, baseball, you name it, soccer, you call the game and you do that. And you, and, and you can't get discouraged. When I was coming out of college, 
I must have written a hundred letters. I never heard probably from maybe nine tenths of the people you would send a letter to and you get a letter back. No, no, no. You're going to hear the word no a lot, but all it takes is one yes. And when someone says yes and they give you a chance, okay, you have to take advantage of that. The moment you're able to walk in that door, it's on you. It's not on anyone else. It's on you. So if they tell you, hey, Chuck, you know what? We need you to show up at 8 a.m. on a Saturday morning. And by the way, it's probably going to be a 14, 16-hour day. You go, yes, I'm excited. And you don't get there at 6 a.m. You're there at 5.30 in the morning. Because you have to show your diligence. You have to show that you want it badly enough and that you are going to do whatever it takes to be prepared that you are going to take that path to greatness. So you have to be you. You may hear somebody on the radio and TV you like. We've all done that. And we all take something here, something there. But at the end of the day, you have to be comfortable. You have to be you. And that's why I think when I talk to young women and men who want to get into this industry, they're going to have to pay the price because they're going to be some very long, lonely, tough nights, nights of discouragement, nights where you of insecurity, nights where you start doubting yourself. But you got to mentally fight through that because if you truly want to be great and truly want to get that first foot in the door to success, it's, it comes with a price. And the price is that you're going to have to sacrifice. Because if you're not willing and ready to sacrifice and you want that comfort job, that's great. If you want to go somewhere or some other vocation and say to yourself, hey, you know what? This wasn't for me. Great. Good. I get it. It's not for everybody. But if you want it bad enough, you're going to have to say to yourself, I know what, what's in front of me here and I'm willing to do this. But you've got to, you know, you got to believe in yourself and you got to surround yourself with people who will continue to encourage you, but honest people who will be transparent. So when you present them with your work and say, I need, I need you to like analyze my work. Give me a, a view of my five minute, 10 minute air check. You want somebody who's going to be honest. Because if they tell you stuff you want to hear, that's not going to make you better. But if they say, listen, you know what? I love this, this, and this, but let's work on you know, E, F, and G. Let's, let's do some things differently here. What was your approach with this interview? You know, you asked two questions, but you made three statements for them to respond. When you interview, it is an interview. It's asking questions. It's not making a statement. It's asking questions. Or when we put a package together and you've got two minutes, you know, we need to get into it immediately. We only have a 45, 50 second, 70 second presentation. We can't start with your know, peripheral stuff. Let's get into it. Little things like that. And that's how we grow. That's how we get better. Well, the great words of wisdom from the great Chuck Swirsky. Thank you so much, sir for uh, taking time to chat with me today and being on the show. And uh, yeah, it, like we've said, it'll be interesting to see what happens um, with the with the playoffs, with the NBA, and with the future of sports moving forward. 
Well, thank you. And, and you know, in the background, I, I, I see, you know, New York, the Islanders, you know, classic logo, the Blackhawks logo, like awesome. And uh, Tony Fernandez, rest his soul. Owens, tell me about that one. This is a uh, Chad Owens autographed jersey from the Toronto Argos. Uh, I've had season seats for a few years and got that signed back a couple of years ago. But I'll tell you one thing, Chuck. This is just a small sample size. Uh, I should get you on chat after and show you the man cave that I have set up with all the bobbleheads that I have, everything else. Because, uh, yeah, you, if you think this is a good setup, you should see the rest of it. Nice. Well, I wish you well. Great job with the interview, and thank you so much. Yes, thank you so much, and uh, best of luck with everything in the future with the Bulls, and uh, we look forward to seeing more from you. Thank you. All right, have a good day. Bye-bye. Bye. Special thanks to Chuck Swarski for joining us on the show today to talk about his work with the Toronto Raptors and now the Chicago Bulls with all the play-by-play -play work that he has been doing over the last number of years. And thank you to everyone for tuning in to another edition of From the Sands, the Cool Pick Show. Until next time.